Good evening, everyone. This is a little. And welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs. And I'm thrilled to welcome you to our Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now is the exhibition World War II and New York City, which tells the dramatic story of New York's crucial role in World War II. I hope you'll take the opportunity to visit the exhibition, if you haven't already, and all the other exciting offerings at the New York Historical, including our inaugural Bernard and Irene Schwartz Classic Film Series, which is free with your admission during our pay-as-you-wish Friday night. Friday nights. I just want to see if Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz are here yet. They were coming. I don't see them, but we will thank them in a, in a few minutes. Um, they are so generous. Tomorrow night, speaking of the film series, in conjunction with the World War II exhibition, we're screening On the Town, co-directed and co-choreographed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donnan. Stanley Donan, Donan was scheduled to come. He can't, so in place of him, we have Will Friedwald, the music and jazz critic for Wall Street Journal. He also writes for the New York Times and other, other uh, places. He's going to give a pre-screening talk at 7 p.m. And I'm telling you about this because I think it's so exciting. He's bringing clips that hardly anyone has seen before of Frank Sinatra singing a song that never made it into the film. He's bringing a clip of Tony Bennett singing, never seen before, singing the tunes. And he'll shed light on the whole film. I think it'll be very nice. So come join us if you'd like. And if you're not already a member, we encourage you to join the family. Um, just let's give a show of hands how many are members here tonight. Look around, it's lots of people, so those of you who aren't already members, please join us. We, we love having members here and non-members, but it's great having your support. It helps um, all our exhibitions, our programs, and as all of you know, most of you know, that you get a great discount on public programs. Tonight's program, Lincoln and Emancipation, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical Society. Additionally, I want to recognize, oh, let's give them a hand right now. <laughs> And I also want to recognize and thank New York Historical Society Trustee Lon Jacobs and the many Chairman's Council members in the audience tonight for their support. Let's give them a hand as well. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session. Audience members will be invited up to, to approach two standing mics in either aisle. And we ask that you do that so that the speakers on stage and everyone in the audience can hear you. And we are also recording it. And it won't, if, if we don't hear you through the mic, we're not gonna hear, no one, none of our podcast audience will hear you either. And following the program, please join us for a book signing with our speakers who books will be available for purchase in our museum store for those of you, the few of you who are new here. The museum store is to your right, near the 77th Street exit, and the speakers will be signing at a table just outside the back doors. So now to introduce our speakers. James Oakes is the Graduate School Humanities Professor and Distinguished Professor of History at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. He has held several fellowships, including the National Endowment for the Humanities, and was awarded the Lincoln Prize in 2008 for his book, The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the Triumph, at the Triumph of Anti-Slavery Politics. His most recent book is Freedom National, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, 1861 to 1865. And we are pleased to welcome back Edna Green Medford, professor and chairperson of the Department of History at Howard University, where he, she has specialized in 19th century US history for 25 years. 
or over 25 years, I don't over 25 years, and she's only 30 years old. I don't know how she's done it. She has also served as director of the history component of New York's African Burial Ground, among many other projects. And her publications include the Emancipation Proclamation, Three Views, which she co-authored. And she is currently working on a book entitled Lincoln and Emancipation, a Timely Topic. Louis P. Major is professor of American, American Studies and History at Rutgers University and the author of many books on American history, most recently, Lincoln's Hundred Days, The Emancipation Proclamation, and The War for the Union. Professor Major's essays and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The American Scholar, Slate, and Salon, among many others. We are delighted to welcome him this, him this evening as moderator. Due to unforeseen circumstances, Harold Holzer, who often moderates our Lincoln and Civil War programs, he was originally planned to be here, but he was unable to come this evening. So Lou, Lou Major will be our moderator tonight. Before we begin, I just want to ask if you have a cell phone that you please turn it off or a beeper. We have a photographer, a house photographer here tonight. We ask that there's no recording or photographer. And now, please welcome our wonderful guests. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dale, for that introduction. And on behalf of the three of us, uh, we're delighted to be here. Thank you to the New York Historical Society for hosting this event. Uh, I am moderator, but also participant. That makes me something like player manager, I suppose. And this is a wonderful time, of course, to be talking about Lincoln and emancipation. We've just passed the 150th anniversary of the issuance of the decree on January 1st. Uh, on that day, 150 years ago, Lincoln went to his office in the morning intending to signed this momentous decree, uh, but he noticed there was an error in the document. The superscription was, was wrong, and, and this document of all documents he would not sign with a mistake. So he sends it back to the government printing office, and uh, he goes on and does the White House reception, where he's greeting people and shaking hands and heads of state and dignitaries. The document arrives in the afternoon. He goes back upstairs, and his hand is shaking, and he tries to quiet his hand because this document, of all documents, he did not want to go out with a tremulous signature. Uh, he succeeds, of course, he signs the document and uh, someone, Frederick Seward, William Seward's son, says that he says at the time that if ever my name goes forth, uh, it will be for this act and my heart is wholly in it. So I think the place for us to begin today is with that momentous act, that document. And the question really is, what did it do? What did it mean? Uh, what understanding should we have of, of the Emancipation Proclamation? Me? Yeah. Well, I think it was, uh, it was the most uh, dramatic shift in uh, a series of anti-slavery policies that the Republicans had been undertaking, Lincoln and the Republicans had been undertaking since the beginning of the war. It is the moment when military emancipation reaches its peak of, of intensity. It's when the anti-slavery force of the Union Army is released in full in, in very new ways that it hadn't been until that time. Uh, for the first time, the Union Army is allowed to go on to plantations, instructed to go on to plantations and, uh, in, and entice slaves off their plantations uh, and to, especially the men to join the Union Army. Uh, and that is the second major shift that the proclamation represents. Uh, it opens the Union Army to full-scale uh, enlistment of African-American soldiers, and that too had momentous consequences. So it's a shift in policy with really significant consequences for how the Union Army was going to behave in the South when it encountered slavery. But Edna, does it free the slaves? <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> it's a promise of freedom. And Lincoln certainly understood that in order for the proclamation to be successful, African-Americans would have to do their part. 
they would have to leave the plantations and farms and cities. And they did. They certainly had been doing that before the proclamation was issued, but it was rather haphazard. So it was very important for Lincoln to issue the document. The document was extremely important. Uh, the uh, Anglo-African that was published right here in New York called it a pillar of flame, beckoning the uh, slaves to the dreamed of promise of freedom. And so when they heard of the proclamation, many of them did take off. Many of them joined the Union Army as well. And those who remained behind on the plantations helped to destroy the system from within. As you point out, I mean, you say it didn't free the slaves. Of course, part of the argument is, is once you issue this document and, and the slaves have been announced to be freed, were those in Confederate areas not under Union military control? So that's significant. It's important for everybody to realize that, of course. There are, there are four slave states still in the Union. Uh, and the document does not touch those states. And Lincoln had started out, and he will continue to agonize right over the border states, Delaware, Maryland, Missouri, and Kentucky. And it also doesn't free those slaves in areas in the Confederacy under Union military control, because the whole rationale for the document was, as Jim alluded earlier, right, military necessity justified it. Why did he need that justification? I mean, let's go back to um, to really the beginning. So, you know, the war begins, Lincoln, Republican, elected president, anti-slavery platform, uh, Lincoln is anti-slavery. Why not just abolish slavery right off the bat? I mean, the South has seceded. Uh, it seems to be a war about slavery. Why not come into office and abolish slavery? What, what keeps him from doing that? Jim. The yeah. short answer? Sure. Because we can, this way we can get to a lot more other points. The short answer is the Constitution. That, that, uh, if, uh, Americans always fight over what the meaning of the Constitution is, but one of the very few things Americans have ever disagreed about is, is that the Constitution did not allow the federal government to uh, uh, abolish slavery in a state where it already existed. That, that conception of what the Constitution allows or doesn't allow pre-existed the Constitution. It was the premise of the Articles of Confederation. The men in Philadelphia brought that premise into the convention with them. They never even stated it, but almost immediately upon issuing the Constitution, North and South, South Carolina, Massachusetts, people started saying, of course, the Constitution doesn't allow the federal government to legislate about slavery in a state where it already exists. Abolitionists believed this, pro-slavery ideologues believed this. It was as close to a consensus position on the Constitution as it has have ever existed sure. in the United States. So you have to understand Republicans coming into the war do not believe and going out of the war don't believe that the federal government has the power to abolish slavery in a state. So what they do, the way they get around this restriction is really the history of how anti-slavery politics develops and what, what the assumptions are going yeah. into the war. And, and of course, that, that preoccupation with the border states slows Lincoln in his movement toward emancipation. I mean, he starts off fearing that if he takes action against slavery, he'll lose Kentucky. Uh, and he says, I mean, he never really said it, but it's a great quote, so it's worth repeating because it's attributed to him. He says, uh, you know, I'd love to have God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. Because should Kentucky bolt and join the Confederacy, it's going to shift the balance sheet of war. Over time, he's going to come to see that all of these entreaties uh, with the border states, please enact in a, something, give me something on gradual emancipation, uh, were falling flat. And he will get to the point where we would completely shift polarities and happily move toward an emancipation proclamation and not worry about those border states. May I disagree? You may. That's what we're here for. <laughs> I think the policy uh, in the border states from the very beginning is different from the policy in the slave states. That, that one of the assumptions Republicans have going into the war, they got this from John Quincy Adams way back in the 1830s, is that under peaceful conditions, the federal government could not interfere with slavery in a state where it already existed. But if, if, if the government has to go into a southern state, into a slave state, to suppress a rebellion, then the laws of war apply. And under the laws of war, it is common knowledge that throughout human history, under the laws of war, belligerents have the right to emancipate slaves 
as, as part of an effort to win a war or suppress a rebellion. So Lincoln and the Republicans believe that from the word go, and they begin implementing military emancipation before they start proposing anything for the border states. I actually think what the war allows Lincoln and the Republicans to do uh, is to be more aggressive uh, uh, towards the border states, rather than the border states slowing the process of emancipation down, I think the process of military emancipation, which began in the first summer of the war, actually sped uh, or intensified the attempts to get the border states to, uh, mm -hmm. to uh, free the slaves. And, and, and I think that if all Lincoln had wanted to do was keep the border states in the Union, that would have been easy, just as if all he wanted to do was save the Union during the secession crisis. That would have been easy. During the secession crisis, to save the Union, all he would have had to do is make every concession the South demanded, and he could have saved the Union. The, with the border states, it would have been easy to keep the border states. It would never have been a problem, except that he also wanted them to abolish slavery. So he wanted to do two things. He wanted to keep them in the Union, and he wanted to get them to abolish slavery. And the war allowed him to push for anti-slavery anti agenda in the border states much, much more rapidly, much more aggressively than he would have been able to do had there not been a war. And the military emancipation that had started already in the South became, for Lincoln and for all Republicans by early 1862, a lever, an additional lever that he was going to use to keep the press, to intensify the pressure and say, look, look, this stuff's going to spread. You're not going to be able to stop this. You know? And the, the friction and abrasion of war is eventually going to spread from these seceded states where we are now emancipating slaves up into the border states. So take the money and run, folks. You can have gradual compensated emancipation now, or you can wait until the friction and abrasion of war spreads throughout, you know, throughout, throughout the seceded states and up into the border states. So sure. I have a different conception of, of how, how the border states affected Lincoln's Emancipation policy, but it certainly and, uh, frustrates him that they're they not frustrate taking the action. devil out of him because they they, they, they don't do what he wants. Uh, I, I well, think. Go ahead. Had, well, had they actually um, emancipated the border states had actually emancipated, then there would have been no need for an emancipation proclamation. No, the Emancipation Proclamation is, the, is, the, uh, is a turning point in the history of military emancipation. There are two separate policies going on. Uh, understood, understood. Right. But the, the two are still linked, are they not? Yes. The, well, let's say they link their border state policy to the military emancipation policy. But what's driving the military emancipation policy primarily is the rebellion and the need to suppress it. Right. right. Well, the, the, if the border states had abolished slavery, that would have, in Lincoln's mind, encouraged the southern states, the, the receded states, to, to give up the rebellion, he thought. But like, whether it would have done so. Yeah, I never understood that. Because it's no, I don't think me, so. Well, either. it seems right. to me that those 11 had decided that they were going to separate from right. the Union, right. no matter who did what. Right. And if Lincoln had actually accepted their demands, right. that would have meant there would have been a separate country. And so wasn't the whole idea to pull the country back together. Yes. So I, I don't see that, that the border states emancipating would have made any difference at all. I'm not sure. No, I, in fact, as a matter of no. fact, we don't even have to speculate whether it would have. By the end of the war, uh, six states had abolished slavery. <laughs> and there's no evidence that the Confederacy was giving up uh, because so, so, the board. So Lincoln was rather naive in his assumption. Well, I think all, that's not just Lincoln. I, mean, I think the assumption that virtually all anti-slavery people had going into the war was that slavery was weak and it was going to collapse very quickly as soon as the Union armies went in there. And it was weakest of all in the border states. That's the first place it's going to collapse. It turned out not to be the case. And so, yes, they all learned very quickly that their original assumptions about the border states were wrong. As a matter of fact, the border states turn out to be the very last places. That's right. Slavery and some destroyed. of them, two of them, don't abolish slavery until the 13th Amendment compels them to yeah, abolish the last it. But, places in the but what, we're get, what we're getting at here is understanding emancipation as a process and as a moment, as something that's evolutionary. And however much Lincoln was anti-slavery, and I don't think there's any reason to doubt his true anti-slavery beliefs. Uh, he said, I'm naturally anti-slavery. I cannot remember a time in my life when I did not feel and believe so. Uh, but there's a difference between being anti-slavery 
and being able to act on those beliefs. So uh, if we come back to the period before, because again, I want to come back to you know, April 1861, Lincoln makes the decision to issue an Emancipation Proclamation in July of 1862. Uh, he announces it in September of 1862. And when he announces it, he says, I'm going to issue it in 100 days. And this, of course, drives the abolitionists crazy. What is the problem with this guy? Uh, William Lloyd Garrison says if he is six feet, foot, six feet four tall in height, he's a dwarf in mind. And they can't understand the delay, the deliberation. Let's go back, though. At one point, Lincoln says, the pressure upon me in this direction, meaning emancipation, is very great as a way of notifying the border states that this is coming. So Edna, what are some of those pressures? You, you alluded before to the Emancipation Proclamation um, being an announcement to the enslaved, rise up and leave the plantations. But wasn't this something that was happening much earlier on? Is that one of the pressures upon Lincoln? Well, he has the pressure of Congress actually making certain moves. Because in 1861, you have the first Confiscation Act. And you've got generals in the field trying to emancipate and taking control of the process away from him. Uh, you have uh, DC emancipation occurring in April of 1862. You have emancipation in the territories, all of that uh, being carried out by Congress. You have various groups across the country uh, suggesting that it's time to emancipate. You have the need for, uh, to include black men in military service in a meaningful way. Certainly they were there before, but with the Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln is strengthening that, that, um, that opportunity for African-American men to serve, to, uh, to serve in the Union Army. And so you have, uh, he has pressures uh, coming to bear from a variety of sources, uh, none, not the least of which are people who are already leaving the plantations. Yeah, can we talk more about that? Because there's, there's a lot that's made of that argument, that, that the enslaved take advantage of the dislocation of war, and they start running away and delivering themselves to Union lines. So in effect, they announce themselves as free almost before there's a military policy or any other about freedom. Some people have made that really a major argument about the drive toward emancipation. I mean, where, where do we place that? And they're, they're given a name, the contrabands, and it's clear that generals in the field are having to respond in terms of developing policy with regard to emancipation. As you pointed out, Lincoln, much to the consternation of many other Republicans, <coughs> overturns some of the uh, commands of a few generals who have emancipated the slaves. Um, Jim, how do, we, how do we understand this process, again, of the contrabands, the, the enslaved delivering themselves to Union lines, Union generals, on their own enacting policy, right. uh, Lincoln overturning those policies, and yet moving in his own path. He overturned certain policies and not others. He overturned the illegal ones and kept the legal ones. Uh, uh, the, the, I, I, think, I think we tend to oversimplify. It's, it's easy. To, we, we look for a single agent when we talk about something like emancipation. So you get one group of historians will insist that Lincoln freed the slaves all by himself just by the, you know, with the stroke of his pen. And other historians swing to the opposite extreme and will say that the slaves freed themselves. No thanks to Lincoln. The, the proclamation didn't free a single slave and that sort of stuff. But one of the things that impresses me about, uh, about when you step back and look at what everybody is saying, or let's say what the Republicans are saying, is that the entire policy of military emancipation, which again is different from the policy they can impose on or attempt to enforce in the border states because they're not, they're not suppressing a rebellion there. Military emancipation from the very beginning presupposed, it didn't make any sense as Enda said, it didn't make any, it couldn't work if it, if without slaves running to union lines or coming within union lines. So the policy that's in place, that the Republicans put in place from August of 1861 until the proclamation is slaves who come within your lines are emancipated. Right? You can't go onto a plantation and entice them, but slaves who come within your lines. Right? So that, makes, that policy will not work, and the Republicans know that it will not work. They're assuming going into the war, this is a debate during the secession crisis. What are the slaves going to do? Right? The Republicans are saying, you just watch. 
they're saying this to the CCC, you just watch. You leave, there's going to be a war. The Union Army is going to move into the South, and the slaves are going to run to the Union lines like you won't believe. And no one in the North is going to tolerate the idea of a Union Army being the, being the enforcement agent for the Fugitive Slave Act. So they're threatening this from the start. So it's not an either or. It's not did the slaves force the Union army to emancipate slaves. They could have run to Union lines and the Union could have, the soldiers could have taken their rifles out and sent them away. Right? They, they ran. They did <laughs> in instances. Well, they also put them to work. They put so them to work. But, but the, the point is that if they, when you, you know, you think about it this way. This is a war. Wherever the Union Army is in the South, the Confederate Army is likely to be nearby. And if you're a slave and you're leaving, trying to get to the Union Army, there's a good chance you're going to bump into the Confederate Army, right? Well, you bump into the Confederates, and it happened a lot uh, uh, on your way to looking to get to the Union lines. You're forcing the Confederates into a policy as well. Right? What policy do the Confederates in, you know, embrace? when they're forced by escaping slaves to deal with the problem? Well, they issue shoot-to-kill orders. They issue re-enslavement orders. Right? So it's not enough to say that slaves arriving at the military lines force emancipation. They force a response. They'll get one response from the Confederates, but they'll get a different response from the Union. Right. Right? And the different response means is a function of something other than merely slaves you know, running to Union lines. It's both, yep. you know, yep. it's an anti-slavery assumption bumping into slaves who want their freedom, and they understand that. The slaves understood that the Union Army was different from the Confederate Army and that they would be treated differently, so they run to Union lines. And the Union Army and the Northerners understood that slaves were likely to run to their lines when they get to the South. Absolutely. And, and part of that anxiety, of course, it creates another anxiety. Let me bring this back to Lincoln, um, since we're focus of this, the title of this is Lincoln and Emancipation. So part of the cultural and social anxiety is what are we going to do with all these African Americans, enslaved and then freed, who are coming into Union lines and by extension who are coming north? And this is the 19th century. It's a racialist society. Uh, a lot has been made of Lincoln's colonizationist beliefs, at least up until um, late 1862. And, and one of the distinctions here is between this first document, the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which comes out on September 22nd, and the final document. They are not the same document. And the document changes over time. One of the things that change is in the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, Lincoln mentions supporting efforts for the colonization of freed blacks, voluntary colonization. Uh, that drops out by January 1st, and as Edna pointed out, uh, in lieu of that, we have the authorization for the enlistment of black soldiers, quite a different thing. We should talk, though, about Lincoln and his racial attitudes, uh, about this culture's racial attitudes, the, the anxiety that's created by the idea of emancipation. Where does Lincoln's support for colonization come from? Because from our point of view, it was a panacea. It was silly. It could never actually work. And yet, so many statesmen supported this policy. Mm -hmm. I think Lincoln understood white America very well. And he certainly understood that if enslaved people got their freedom, they would not be welcome in the country. Not just not welcome in the South, but not welcome in the North either. And I think that's one of the reasons why Northerners were not so agitated over the issue of slavery as long as it didn't affect them directly. They certainly didn't want African Americans to be freed and then to have a horde descend on them because they would have to compete um, for limited jobs and, and for housing and so forth. And I think Lincoln's colonization ideas come from the person that he considers, uh, he called the beau ideal of a statesman, uh, Henry Clay who was at one point the president of the American Colonization Society. And he, I believe Lincoln truly believed that a just way to deal with the issue of two races trying to occupy the same space and believing that they could never coexist was to have the race that was not in power to leave the country. And so he met with a group of men uh, in Washington in August of 1862, 
and suggested that it would be best for them and for the country to leave America and find some other place uh, where they could actually control their own destiny. By, 18, by December of 1862, I think Lincoln understood that African Americans were not going to go any place. Uh, these men certainly went back to the community and tried to convince their brothers and sisters that it made sense for them to leave the country, but African Americans were having none of it. And so by the time Lincoln is issuing the final proclamation in, on January 1st, 1863, he realizes that it's not going to happen. And the interesting thing is, because he's issuing the proclamation, it actually encourages African Americans in the belief that they can make it in America. Right. So Lincoln sort of destroys his own idea of colonization. Sure, I mean part of that, and I think Jim, maybe you would agree with this, I'm not sure, it comes out of a kind of paternalistic racialism out of this um, more, more sort of nasty animus or, or hatred, and here too Lincoln will change his mind. The belief is, if the belief is that the enslaved are either too docile to fend for themselves or once freed are going to be savage and barbaric, then the only thing that's going to prevent a race war in America is this idea of colonization. And there's a certain element of that in, in the public discussion, right? There's editorial after editorial. There's an editorial in the New York Times in late 62, says what is to be done with them is the title of the editorial. And, and Jim, I probably got this from your book, but Frederick Douglass goes crazy. He says, what is to be done with them Leave them alone. It's your doing with them that got us into this problem in the first place. Uh, so I think that's a conversation, wouldn't you agree, Jim, that, that publicly is, is being engaged and people, again, uh, are changing their minds as they have to think through these issues. Yeah, I think... You can disagree think, with me again. It's okay. Uh, no, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't... People are changing their mind. The evidence for yeah. it is pretty clear and, and very detailed. Uh, but I would say that... Um, the debate is already underway. I, I think it's, yeah. it's important to understand that it was almost impossible for Americans to debate. You can't debate about slavery without debating about race. And so part exactly. of the anti-slavery argument was an argument about race. And, and we, need to, we need, I think, to resist the tendency to say, all of Amer you have to understand that all of America in the 19th century is a racist society because there is, in fact, an enormous debate about race going on in the middle of the 19th century, and it's, pro it's, it's sparked by the slavery debate. So if you, if you ask the question, and this was a huge question in the 1850s, in the North, does the promise of universal freedom in the Declaration of Independence apply to blacks and whites alike, or was it meant only for whites? you get a huge difference of opinion there between Northern Democrats and Northern Republicans. And Lincoln believed that it did apply to whites and blacks alike, that the fundamental rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were not racially differentiated in the United States. Right? Now, that's a race argument that isn't the same as a slavery argument, but it's provoked by the slavery argument. Exactly. Right? But, right? but how is that translated in practical terms? Because you might have a group of people who believe that it, it applies to blacks and whites equally. Right. But you have someone like Lincoln and others who may be anti-slavery, but who's not, at least at that time, right. ready to give African-Americans equal rights. Right. And that doesn't happen but until right. he changes right. during the war. That's right. That I, I agree with you changing. I'm just saying that we, we need to be dif differentiate about where, and Americans disagreed with one another about how far racial equality could go, and there was an enormous fight about race, and Lincoln took this position that was mainstream Republican position, that on this particular issue, blacks and whites ought to be treated equally. A similar argument is welling up about, about, about citizenship. Right? The response to the Dred Scott decision in the North it, among Republicans is overwhelmingly hostile. They don't really believe that it's not that that blacks are not citizens of the United States, and indeed, in this critical hundred days between the preliminary and the final proclamation, one of the most important things that happens is Lincoln's Attorney General issues a very significant report, declaring that the Dred Scott decision was wrong; that blacks, in fact, are citizens of the United States, 
and, and that was there already on the table being fought out because all the personal liberty laws that the northern states were passing that the southern secessionists hated so much and demanded re be repealed were based on the premise that blacks and whites were citizens. They yeah. were citizens. Right. So there's a debate about citizenship going on in the north about, between, among whites. There's a debate about the re applicability of the principles of the Declaration of Independence where there is agreement is where there is less fighting is on these questions of social equality, right? The, should right. blacks and whites be allowed to vote? Should they be allowed to intermarry? Should blacks serve on juries? Those questions. But those don't quest come directly to the issue of citizenship or to fundamental rights. So in practical terms, what it means is you're anti-slavery. Right. You're anti-slavery. That's a very significant practical consequence of believing that the Declaration of Independence applies equally to whites and blacks. Yeah. Okay, but but it is, is it not so, though, that the average American is more than willing to have African Americans leave the country? The average American? That's just the society in general. I, I know it's very difficult to I don't know about leaving, what an average American is. I, I don't know about leaving the country. I mean, I, I think it's the... Um, you know, it's okay as long as they don't live here sort of thing. I mean, we have to remember there are many northern states that have stricter rules against free blacks having equal citizenship rights than certain southern states. Uh, in Illinois, there's, there's a crisis about the idea of free blacks migrating north. So again, this is, as we've been saying, it, it's people are, are, are seeing something for the first time. I mean, it's part of what's so amazing about the whole era. You know, I, I talk about soldiers, right? Soldiers who go south, who perhaps never in their lives before had seen a black face, for whom slavery was an abstraction, about how experience compels people to change their minds, uh, to think through things, and to come to some terms. And, and again, for me, this is the major theme, not only for Lincoln, but for the society as a whole, that there's this ongoing debate and there is, there is change. Not everyone changes. Uh, some people stick hard and fast to their assumptions about the world, but you could see it uh, in soldiers' letters and diaries where they say, when the war started, I didn't care anything at all about slavery. I just was fighting for union. I just wanted to win the war. I was against the Emancipation Proclamation. I was opposed to the enlistment of black troops. By 1863, 1864, this is the greatest thing that has ever happened. I can't imagine it not happening. Uh, and, and here, too, to bring it back to Lincoln, uh, Lincoln's deliberate style may have driven his critics nuts, but you can also see him changing. And then in certain other ways, he has said this, Lincoln. Lincoln said, I have always taken my time, I have always considered issues, I have always been gradual and deliberate, but once I've made up my mind, in fact, he says it to Frederick Douglass, right? I cannot recall an instance where I went back on my word. And this is what happens during that critical period between September and, and January in 1862. He has every reason in the world not to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, the Republican Party takes a beating in the congressional elections in 1862. There's the threat of intervention on the part of Great Britain and France into the war. And there's a lot of anxiety that issuing an Emancipation Proclamation would cause that to happen. Uh, time and again, he's being cajoled, pleaded with, begged not to do it. And he chooses not to interpret the results of those elections as a referendum on emancipation. He says, no, it's a referendum on the war. And indeed, by December, when a group of Kentucky Unionists come to visit him, he says to them, I would rather die than take back a word of the proclamation of freedom. So it's important, whatever we think about Lincoln and, and freeing the slaves, to see the ways in which he, he continued uh, to act, having made the decision to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. And perhaps this is an appropriate movement, moment to talk about the fact that January 1st doesn't end the story of Lincoln and emancipation. Uh, so maybe we should pick up there about these sort of ongoing efforts, uh, both on the part of Lincoln, since that's the topic of our panel today, as well as, as, well as other efforts to, to act against slavery. So, so what goes on? I mean, what, what kinds of steps are being taken once the Emancipation Proclamation is, is issued? Well, I mentioned those two that, that are direct policy shifts in the proclamation itself, that is the, the lifting of the ban on enticement and the, uh, uh, and the enlistment of black troops. Uh, over the course, of, that means that over the course of 1863, military emancipation at, 
at high tide is being imposed wherever the Union armies go. This is when you start seeing truly huge numbers of, of, of contrabands following Union armies. 5,000 contrabands in the wake of Sherman's army during the Meridian campaign. You know, you're going to get 10,000 uh, uh, contrabands following his army on the march to the sea in, uh, in 1864. Just enormous numbers. So it's being imposed as rapidly and as intensively as possible over the course of 1863. Uh, and black troops are being enlisted in increasing numbers so that by the, uh, ultimately 180,000, by the last year of the war, they constitute 20% of the, of the Union Army. To have lost those in the last year of the war would have been a devastating blow. Uh, uh, so they were absolutely essential to the ability of the Union uh, to win the war. And Lincoln understood that. that we're not going to have emancipation if we don't win the war, and we must have African-American soldiers to win the war. So uh, the reason that black troops are in the Emancipation Proclamation is because he understood that. Right? Uh, there were other people. Chase thought he supported black troops, the Secretary of the Treasury, but he didn't think it belonged in the Emancipation Proclamation. But Lincoln understood that it had to be there because it was part of the process, yeah. right, getting black troops. Now, by late 1863, these two policies of putting intense pressure on the border states to abolish slavery on their own and full-scale military emancipation in the seceded states are, are in place. And when Congress comes back in December of 1863, the tide of the war has changed dramatically. In the summer, you got uh, the, these two crucial Union victories at, at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg. Most military historians think that from that point on, the tide of the war has changed in favor of the Union. Congress comes back. Republicans understand better than ever that they are going to win this war. They don't understand how long it's still going to take. But they know they're going to win the war. And they're worried. By when are you point. talking? I'm sorry. By, after, after Vicksburg and Gettysburg, they're fairly confident okay. when they come back. I mean, the election of 1864, which we don't have time to go into, if Lincoln's not reelected, They would have won the war. They're not well, so sure the, well, that they're going to There may get not have slavery. been emancipation. Exactly. That's what I mean. Right. What, what happens in, 18, in late 1860, by late 1863 is the dawning realization that they may win the war without slavery having been exactly. abolished. And that sets off a, 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 a several months of debate among Republicans in Congress over how they're going to take care of this problem. They try legislative emancipation in a variety of ways. They talk about territorializing the South because you can abolish slavery in the territories but not in the states. They reaffirm the, the uh, emancipation of the wives and children and mothers of Union soldiers to try to get more of them legally emancipated. But finally, they realize none of this is going to work. And the only way they can deal with this is by a constitutional amendment simply abolishing slavery everywhere. By March of 1864, the Republicans are committed to that. They get it through the Senate pretty easily, but they get stopped in the House because you need two-thirds of the House. You need a supermajority to get the emancipation, to get a constitutional amendment passed. And in early June, the Democrats have enough votes because of those 1862 elections. They have enough votes to stop it. Right? The, uh, up until that point, Republicans got everything they wanted. All that legislation that Edna mentioned, you know, the, the abolish, abolition in the territories, the abolition in DC, you know, the, 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 the Militia Act, all those things they could pass because they always had majorities. They didn't have two thirds, right? right? And the House stops it, right? And they go into the 1864 election not certain that if they, that, that they're gonna get this war ended with emancipation because they might lose the election. They had to win the 1864 election. They had to get enough votes in the House of Representatives, and Lincoln had to be elected president in order to get that abolition amendment through. So, so, and, and they understood this. They, they understood very, very clearly that the Emancipation Proclamation was not going to be enough to finish the job. And of course, Go ahead, yeah. Lincoln wins the election because of the soldiers' vote. And Very so, important. yes, the soldiers did the soldiers that were allowed to vote in the field and separately tabulated voted mm -hmm. over 70% for, for Lincoln. Um, I hear there's a movie about the 13th Amendment, <laughs> but I don't know. Uh, may, maybe there'll be a question about that, or, or, although maybe I'll use this as an opportunity. For first, uh, a public service announcement, because we're coming close to the point where we would like to invite you to ask some questions, because that'll allow us to get at some things uh, we'll be taking questions in a few moments. 
Uh, if you would like to ask a question, I just ask, repeating what Dale said, that you please approach one of the two standing mics in the aisles. Uh, before asking the question, please tell us your name. Um, out of respect for other people waiting their turn, please only ask one question and keep the question brief if you would. Uh, two staff members are on hand if you need any assistance. Uh, while you're preparing your question or, or, or lining up at the mics, uh, perhaps that is a note to end on since uh, this part of the conversation, since the film has gotten a lot of attention. Uh, Lincoln as sort of raging abolitionist pushing for the 13th Amendment. And I think as we've shown today, uh, Lincoln's stance is more evolutionary, uh, more measured, more measured. More measured in, in many ways. But uh, not to preempt what may be a question from the audience, but briefly, uh, what is your take on, um, on Spielberg's Lincoln? It's a great movie, um, Oscar-winning performances, uh, clearly. But <laughs> um, emancipation, the emancipation story was very complex. And Hollywood has reduced it to something more simplistic than it was. But of course, it's a movie. So it can't show everything that needed to. I think that, I mean, the movie's about Lincoln first and foremost, not about, I mean, it's about Lincoln through dealing with the 13th Amendment. But I would have liked to have seen some attention given to what's happening before it gets into the house the second time. Because there was a lot that went on that first time right. when it was in the House of Representatives, and that's why it didn't pass. Right. And it's a part of the larger emancipation story. So I think that Spielberg, could have done a better job had he talked about the emancipation story in general and Lincoln's centrality to that. Jim, if you could just make this clear for all of us, because the film does it in a brief aside that's very complicated for people to follow. So why is the 13th Amendment necessary? Uh, for, what is it, why, for, why isn't the Emancipation Proclamation enough? <clears throat> because by the end of the war, you have these two policies, and both of them had succeeded to some extent, but neither together or, in, or alone were enough to get slavery completely abolished. There are approximately 500, hmm? Did you say something? No. Sorry. There are approximately 500,000 slaves emancipated by the war, but there are 4 million slaves. Right? By the end of the war, six states have abolished slavery, but there are 15 slave states. Right? So they know that what they have been pursuing has has had some effect. And in fact, it's hard to imagine the Emancipation Proclamation without all that stuff. I mean, one of the things Lincoln says is that to turn late in the war is that to turn your back on these people who have fought for the war and gained their emancipation exactly. would be an astounding breach of faith, right? So it, what has happened beforehand is not irrelevant. It's the precondition. It creates the conditions that make it possible for people by 1864 to imagine <laughs> for the first time that they can actually rewrite the Constitution and abolish slavery forever. That's one thing, finish the job. But there's something else that we don't really appreciate. Uh, that is, when the war, remember what I said earlier about how everyone goes into the war assuming that slavery is a state institution, the federal government can't interfere with it. When the war ends, slavery will revert to the states. If it hasn't been abolished, the states take control over slavery again. <coughs> And the states from early 1862 on, the, the slave states are openly threatening on the floor of Congress to re-enslave all those freed by the war. And the only way to stop that from happening, they are, and it's in the movie, and it's all over the congressional debates, the only way to stop re-enslavement from happening is by a constitutional amendment. Yeah, it's Lincoln's fear of that, of the re-enslavement of those who have been freed, is acute. And he says it time and again. All Republicans. All Republicans, and, and, and it's just acute. So if, if the Emancipation Proclamation freed the slaves, the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery, and that's critical. Uh, I'd, I'd like to invite you now to the microphones in the aisles. Uh, I'm sure you must have some questions. This is a, a complicated topic with lots of different elements to it. And again, uh, I'd, I'd greatly appreciate it if you would uh, just tell us your name and, um, and ask your question. Yes, sir. Richard Davies. I'd like to know more about African-Americans. What the African-American opinion of white America was, how did that change as a result of the Emancipation Proclamation and the war? What role did slaves play in not just running to union lines, but in changing America during the war. 
Oh, I, I think that um, uh, Professor Mazur is correct that the soldiers going south who saw slavery for the first time realized how heinous it was and realized that something needed to be done about it. And so in that regard, African Americans are playing a central role in changing uh, certain Americans' attitudes during that period. Uh, African Americans in the North, before the war even starts, while, they're, while the campaign is going on, are trying to, are, are praying that the Republicans will win, because even though Lincoln is not an abolitionist, he's anti-slavery. And so they're hoping that if he does win, he will do something uh, about slavery. Enslaved people, before Lincoln wins the election, are already aware that if he wins, something good will probably happen uh, for them. Uh, Douglas says that um, enslaved people have opinions of Lincoln that he has not earned yet because they're hearing their owners talk about this Lincoln who's going to free the slaves if he becomes president. And so African Americans are changing some attitudes, but they also understand that, well, they don't understand actually. They believe that with emancipation comes uh, equality. Uh, but that's not what the Emancipation Proclamation is all about. It's about freedom, but not equality. Before the war even ends, though, you have African-American men petitioning the president, asking for things like land, because they're not going to be able to survive in the South if they don't have some kind of economic independence. They're also asking for voting rights. They had been doing that in the North long before this. They were having, in some areas, yearly conventions talking about the, the rights they didn't have. And so those continued during the war. And by 1864, you had the Syracuse Convention, where they are even more forceful in their attempts to get those rights because they see that the war is ending, that slavery is ending, and they're expecting that they're going to be treated as equals with all other Americans. Right. Jim, do you have anything on this? I, I think uh, crucial to this transformation of both white attitudes and, and African Americans is this experience of black soldiers. Absolutely. You have uh, 180,000 uh, 180, men at the end of the war who have fought in the Union Army in arms have proven themselves in battle, and, and this changes white attitudes in significant ways. You can't ask these people any longer to leave the country, having fought for their country. There's a, there's a sentiment in Congress by the middle of 1862, as it becomes clear that they've overestimated unionism in the, in the slave states, especially in the border states. They start talking about the only loyal people in the South are the slaves. The only loyal people we have. And they start talking about them not as slaves, but as loyal Americans who, who don't deserve uh, freedom, but who've earned freedom by their demonstrations of loyalty repeatedly as the Union Army goes into the South. So I, I think the, the effect that has on the people who have served in the Army and its implications for black political leadership and Reconstruction are crucial for the way African Americans imagine the possibilities of life in America after freedom is crucial, but also absolutely critical for the shift in white attitudes uh, about, 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 right. about blacks. Let's get some more questions and I'll go to this side and then back to this side. Uh, my name is Joshua Casper and uh, this might be more of a philosophical question as historians pertaining to the subject matter rather than a factual one. Uh, when analyzing, uh, how, for example, Lincoln would have opined about X or Y. How often do we fail to take into to fail to take into account uh, the fact that uh, and know the unknowable, so to speak, and you know fail to account for the fact that these are political animals, and rather than uh, you know really uh, putting forth that which they truly believe in their heart, it's more about expediency and maybe you know they're. They're doing X or Y to get a vote and, and negotiating as we see today. I mean, after all, this is Congress and these are operators and movers and shakers looking to get votes. We saw that in the movie, you know, money changing hands and, and favors and things. How often do we really attempt to analyze this and we'll never really know because we don't know what's going on behind the scenes? Well, thank you. I mean, I think that, that that's a good question. I, I would only say that you can have both. 
that you can have expediency and political operation and negotiation and strong beliefs and beliefs that also change over time. And I think that's what we see. I think that's what we see that. I mean, the politics of Lincoln's cabinet, uh, the politics of emancipation are considerable. Read the debates. Uh, the pressure is coming from all kinds of directions, as I quoted Lincoln as, as saying. And he's a very skilled politician. Uh, let us not forget that. And, and that's an important part of the story. But it's not one or the other, right? He's a skilled politician who also has some very strong ideas and ideas that are percolating and changing and is managing to sort of apply those in certain ways. I, ta I take that to be the central point of the movie, right? That, yeah. that, that being a politician and being an idealist are not incompatible. Great. Thank you for your question. I want to try and get a few more questions in, if possible. Uh, yes, sir. I'm Jim Pucinich. Um My question deals with Lincoln in the inaugural address. His first inaugural address talked about the um, the states that have slavery would continue to have slavery, but the real issue for him was the spread of slavery to those territories that would eventually come into the United States. Doesn't that make the 13th Amendment really a powerful uh, tool for those territories, Kansas, Nebraska, Oklahoma, et cetera, that will come in later? Well, by then the Congress had abolished Con yes. slavery in the territories. Uh, and. Uh, it was much less controversial that Congress could do that than whether it could abolish slavery in a state where it already existed. So I'm not sure that they were worried about the territories reverting. Although once the territories are admitted as states, if they don't have a 13th Amendment, then a, a territory could change its mind and, and have slavery as well. Right. So I'm not sure it's as important for the territories as it is for the states. Yeah. It's the states. What he says in the inaugural address is specific about this to the states. I don't believe that, the, that the, the federal government has any power to abolish slavery in a state where it already exists. But he's not the only person who's saying that. Thaddeus Stevens is saying that. Benjamin Wade is saying that. You know, all abolitionists, virtually all abolitionists say that. That's just understood. Right? And that's why it's in the first inaugural. Remember, that's March. War has not yet erupted. He's still trying to say to those states that have seceded, you have nothing to fear from the election of a Republican to the presidency. Um, after that, as Jim pointed out, Congress is going to act very quickly. I mean, one of the things, and this is in Jim's new book, I mean, the, the actions of the Republican Congress, uh, if, if Southern Democrats ever wanted to assure the creation of a society that was their worst nightmare, secede, get out of Congress, and allow the Republicans to pass any legislation that they want. And, uh, and they passed plenty of legis legislation. May, may I, may yeah, I'm sorry, Anna, please. What, what I heard in your question, uh, your comment, was that Lincoln starts from the perspective that he's against the expansion of slavery, but at the end of the war, by the time of the 13th Amendment, he's willing to simply see it abolished throughout. And that does, that's a tremendous leap. So it's, it's uh, historians talk about growth. And that's exactly what's happening during this period. He definitely has shifted from what? something rather, I mean, it's, he's willing, he's willing to see, uh, initially, he's willing to see slavery end gradually. And he keeps that position for as long as he can. But as the war progresses, he realizes there, there has to be something that's immediate and something that's more sweeping. It's not just about keeping slavery contained but abolishing it totally. So he does right. make that leap. That's right. That's right. Yes, please. I'm Reva Cooper. Uh, you mentioned England and France and mm. that Lincoln was risking them coming into the war. I thought I had read that one of the motivations for the Emancipation Proclamation was to keep them out of the war. He knew that both countries had abolished slavery, and so he took a gamble of bringing the issue to the forefront. Okay, this is a war about slavery. Are you supporting this? And then they backed off. I mean, is that yeah. true? Or? It's such a complicated story, and it's a story of unintended consequences. At least that's what I argue in my book, where you look at intervention fever. I mean, there's tremendous anxiety about this. England itself is, is divided. Uh, is the Union out for empire? Uh, to what extent is the abolition of slavery a sincere humanitarian gesture as opposed to something else? Uh, the evidence is that Lincoln probably didn't really consider. Uh, he thought it would do them some good. Uh, it turns out almost to have the opposite effect. And it's more the victory at Antietam 
that is more persuasive to England to stay out than it is uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. Because part of the anxiety is, just very, very quickly, because I want to get another question, he, he makes a mistake in the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. This is why you have to read these texts and read them carefully. Uh, in the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, he says that we will make no effort to stop those slaves from taking measures to secure their freedom. Well, what does that mean? That means insurrection. That means bloodshed. That means violence. And England reads it that way. So there's editorial after editorial saying that he's promoting slave rebellion. Uh, he changes that by the final proclamation. But by December of 62, and I wouldn't say it's because of the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, it's clear that England is not going to, to intervene. Uh, I believe we have question, time for one more question. Uh, and you've been waiting patiently, and that goes to you, sir. And Thank you, um, Bob Martin. Um, you mentioned that uh, at least part of the rationale of the proclamation was to entice the 180,000 black soldiers to serve with valor. Um, do you have any evidence or speculation what Lincoln might have done if the Union forces had been successful in the early part of the war and hadn't needed extra forces? My you know how much historians love counterfactual questions, right? <laughs> yeah, Jim. My guess is they would have put all their eggs in the, uh, in the uh, gr gradual abolition basket. That's the policy of what was left. That's what they intended to do. That was their preferred policy. Right. Edna, do you have anything on this? Th no. There would have been no Emancipation Proclamation. Right. Okay. Oh, no, there would no. no. But, you know, but the story would have unfolded, and the ways in which it would have unfolded, uh, we certainly cannot say. But, um, but what we have said tonight is, is what did happen, uh, as opposed to what might have happened. <laughs> but thank you for that question. Louis Majeure, Edna Green Medford, and James Oakes, again, we thank you very much. We want to remind you they'll be signing books outside. We thank you all so much for coming. Come back and have a wonderful evening. Thank you very much. Thank you.